How deep did you plant them? Do you think they're getting enough water? Maybe they're not getting enough water. Are you sure you added fertilizer last time you watered? These are the questions that I ask my husband over dinner as we discuss whether or not our tomato plants will actually produce tomatoes this year. Last year we had a few tomatoes. The year before, we still had tomatoes on the vine in late October. But my husband and I have never actually produced a bumper crop of tomatoes. And let's face it, it's not really summer until you've eaten a fresh homegrown tomato. I like to buy my tomato plants over at the Kansas City Community Garden Center. When you go there, it's a lot like standing in line at the DMV, only everyone is happy and helpful and in love with growing their own tomatoes. And when you stand there in the crowded line with your little plants, hope is in the air. Rich and poor people stand together shoulder to shoulder discussing the best strategies for growing tomatoes. I'll never forget the elderly gentleman that told me that if you put a little Epsom salt in with your tomatoes, they'll do great. Well, I get home, pull in the driveway. I'm feeling full of promise and potential with my plants. We get out the tiller. We till the yard. We add just the right amount of compost. We plant them, measuring the exact distance that they're supposed to be apart from one another. We put down the hay so that no weeds will come, and then we wait. Early in the morning, when the sun is just up, I step outside in the backyard, and I tiptoe across the wet grass to see if anything happened last night while I was sleeping. And you know what? It's so frustrating when they don't produce tomatoes. Have you ever planted anything and then waited for it to grow? Maybe you started a new business and then sat back and waited for it to take off. Maybe you tried to teach your granddaughter the game of golf. Or maybe you're like one of those parents that creates a little reading nook in the home so that you can read each night with your toddler to instill in him or her a love for reading. Several church members have shared with me recently that they have formed these cross-cultural dialogue groups to try to bridge the divide between the races in our city and in our nation. All of these, I think, are ways in which we plant seeds, seeds of hope, and then sit back and wait and hope and pray for an abundant harvest. But sometimes when we plant seeds, we worry that the growth will not come. Today's parable about sowing seeds describes some of what can go wrong when we start planting. Sometimes a bird snatches the good seed and flies off with it. And I'm pretty sure this is what happened when I took Greek in seminary. I understood the Greek fairly well while the professor was explaining it, but when the test came, a bird came and snatched off all those Greek words, and they were just gone. Other times, the seed falls on rocks, and it doesn't find enough soil to take root. This is like when you tell your teenager over and over and over again in a nice voice, and then a not-so-nice voice, to pick up his socks 
before he goes in his room, but he doesn't do it because it never takes root. Sometimes the elements are just not right. The sun scorches the young plant and it withers. Like when you invite a friend to church and she says, I'd love to come. Let me get out my calendar. Oh, you know, I just, I don't have a Sunday free in the foreseeable future. This parable has been my favorite parable since I was a teenager. And I think one reason I liked this parable is because it's one of the few parables, maybe probably the only parable, that comes with an explanation. And even though scholars tell us that the explanation was probably added later, I still loved the explanation because it highlighted for me how sometimes we human beings are simply not very good at being the soil in which God's grace and love will grow. I could relate to this struggle. I remember in junior high going to summer camp and really getting excited about my faith and driving home from camp in the back seat of my dad's car thinking, I'm going to be the perfect Christian. I'm never going to sass my mom. I'm going to stop yelling at my sister, and I'm going to read the Bible every single night before I go to bed. And about two weeks later, the thorns of life had choked out all those promises. And I remember going to a youth conference and getting so fired up in high school about how our youth group could join together with other youth groups across the city to eradicate homelessness. And then I remember a couple of months later being back in school and finding myself more interested in finding the right shoes for the dance to go with the dress than I was interested in eradicating homelessness. If I could just be better soil, I thought, as I read this text, then God's love could take root in me. Ironically, it seems like sometimes the human lives who are the best soil for God's presence to grow are those lives that are filled with manure. Perhaps the pain and the hardship form an opening for God's love to actually grow. Consider the lives of four men who created the national parks and the wilderness areas, which are now conserved for all of us to enjoy from California to Maine, from the upper peninsula of Michigan, all the way down to the Florida Keys. Author Philip Connors describes the hardship that these four American leaders experienced as they devoted their lives to creating this sacred ground for all of us to enjoy. John Muir is well known as a conservationist. You may remember that he's the one that petitioned Congress in 1890 to form Yosemite National Park. But did you know that as a young man, John Muir suffered temporary blindness from a stray metal shaving? And as he was recovering from that period of blindness, he set out on a journey where he slept outdoors under the stars for weeks at a time. It was this particular trip where he was recovering from the blindness that he found ignited within him a love for the landscape and began devoting his life to defending nature. Teddy Roosevelt became the greatest U.S. president to champion the national parks and the forest, and and he used his pen often to create millions of acres of public lands. 
Do you remember that Roosevelt lost his mother and his bride on the same day? After this tragic day in his life, he returned to his ranch in the Dakota Badlands to recuperate in the solitude of nature. As his soul was restored in the wide-open spaces of nature, he was moved to create a place where all people could find renewal and hope in God's creation. One of his key advisors was Gifford Pinchot. Pinchot founded the modern Forest Service, but the soil of Pinchot's life was also littered with pain. He lost the love of his life when he was 26 years old, and he spent the next 40 years trying to commune with her through seances. Pinchot craved time in the woods. Only there did he find peace. Many consider Aldo Leopold the father of modern ecological thinking. He founded our wildlife management system. But the soil of his life was also marred by pain and despair. In his 20s, Leopold was on a long horseback trip through New Mexico when he experienced kidney damage and almost died. He spent many years recuperating, and once he was well again, he created the world's first wilderness area, an area where no roads or no machines would ever go. Much as we admire these, how many of us would choose to have the manure of life thrown at us in order to become fertile ground for the truth and beauty and goodness of God to grow. Surely there's a better way to become good soil. Many of us here in the church devote our lives to trying to become the good soil where God's love can grow. We go to Bible study, and we go to Sunday school, and we give to missions, and we volunteer, and we go on that mission trip to Nicaragua, and we take prayer classes, and we learn to meditate, all so that we might become a dwelling place for God. Sometimes the remarkable growth of God's Spirit is unfolding all around us, and we don't even see it. A recent article in the New York Times by columnist Nicholas Kristof reminded me of what has happened in the last several hundred years because of religious missions. Religious missions combined with overseas efforts in humanitarian aid, both coming from governments and non-for-profits, have produced a high yield in the garden of prosperity for humankind. Although you and I are bombarded daily with images of global poverty, Christoph explained that the world is actually improving in grand and glorious ways, especially if you live amongst the world's poorest of the poor and downtrodden folks. Consider John, who at age 12, living in Liberia, was banished from his family because of leprosy. His parents created a little grass hut for him to live, and each day his father would take a little food and a little water and set it on the ground between the grass hut and the rest of the village, and then he would on the ground so his son John would know that food and water were ready for him. He would come out and get the food and water, and one day there was a missionary from Ohio passing through this section of Liberia, and he heard little John's cries. He carried John to a medical center 
where John was cured. And then John received a full education from the missionary school. Today, John is a nurse who runs a leprosy hospital in Liberia. And did you know that since 1985, that the leprosy rates have declined by 97%? The seeds of medical missions have paid off. And though you and I are accustomed to being bombarded with bad news, Christoph says that 2017 is actually the best year ever in the history of the world in terms of reduction in poverty and disease. Every single day, even today, 250,000 people around the world will graduate from extreme poverty. 300,000 people will get electricity for the first time, and 285,000 will get their first access to clean drinking water. Improved nutrition and vaccinations and health care have improved the lives of 100 million children since 1990. Literacy rates are at an all-time high around our globe, 85%. We are so accustomed to reading bad news that this good news comes to us as startling. But the good news comes because someone scattered seed. Someone started a mission hospital. Someone left their estate to a charitable foundation. Someone built a corporate charity or volunteered with Doctors Without Borders. Someone planted a seed that grew. How can our lives produce this kind of abundant harvest? You know what's funny? Is that the parable never says anything about how to be better soil. We never call it the parable of the bad soil. We call it the parable of the sower. And the sower seems to be rather reckless at sowing seeds. This sower isn't careful like I am when I go out to plant my tomatoes in just the right spot. The sower just flings the seeds out there everywhere like there's seed to spare. And yes, some of it never produces tomatoes. But some of it produces, the text tells us, a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold, which is farmers speak for a whole lot, way more than anyone expected. The harvest in the text is plentiful and lavish and extravagant. It reminds me of the year I planted eggplant. Now, I love eggplant. And that summer, I made eggplant parmesan and ratatouille and eggplant french fries and eggplant dip. But then, come on, let's be honest, what do you make after that? I brought eggplant to the office, I shared it with my neighbors, and it kept growing. I began dreaming at night about different kinds of ways you could use eggplant. Or maybe I would set up my own stand at the Overland Park Farmer's Market and just sell eggplant because it produced so much so unexpectedly. Why can't my tomatoes do that? You see, the parable is not about me or you. It's about God. God irresponsibly tosses the seed, and it produces beyond anyone's wildest imagination. God is the sower. The seed God plants is Jesus. And God not only allows access to everyone, 
God wastes the seed on people who everyone knows do not have a chance at being changed by God's love. God's extravagant growth comes not because we are good soil, but because of God's reckless love. Take, for instance, Cindy Stoll. Why would God plant seeds in her life? She was dying. Stage four cancer. Cindy loved the game show Jeopardy, and she was good. She finally got her chance to compete on national TV. In her first appearance, she unseated the seven-game champion. She won six games and $103,801, all of which she donated to cancer-related agencies. Eight days before Cindy's episodes of Jeopardy aired on national TV, Cindy died. Jeopardy sent her an advance copy so that she could see what it looks like when God sows seeds where everyone knows nothing could possibly grow.